You're listening to Home for Christmas, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, Pastor Ryan Hughley discusses four ways the season of Advent invites our hearts home. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. As I said, I want to spend uh, just about 15 minutes trying to get to the essence of Christmas for Christians. And the truth is, getting at its essence is difficult because it is somehow both simultaneously simple and complicated. And it's complicated due to the history of Christmas. If you've ever done any actual reading about the history of Christmas, you know that the history of this holiday is very, very complicated. Uh, Christmas's deepest roots are in pagan festivals that took place during winter solstice. In fact, the birth of Jesus wasn't even celebrated by Christians until about the 4th century. Up until that point, it was really all about Easter. And so furthermore, when church officials decided to honor the anniversary of Jesus' birth, it was a challenge because, the I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Bible does not actually record a date of birth for Jesus. Uh, most historians believe he was born sometime in the spring because of some of the details in the text that Lincoln just read to us. Because of shepherds out watching their flocks overnight, that would have taken place in the spring. And so when we get to uh, this, the fourth century, Pope Julius I chose December 25th, most likely to absorb this pagan celebration of a holiday called Saturnalia. And it was first called the, the Feast of the Nativity, And so from there, it spread to Egypt in 432 and then England by the 6th century. But even then, it was such a far cry from what it's become. And due to puritanical disdain for decadence, did you know that Christmas was actually canceled altogether in England for many, many years? And it wasn't celebrated. In fact, it was outlawed in in Boston in the early years of our own country, Uh, because, again, it was seen as a time of decadence, and so they just canceled it, and they made it illegal to celebrate Christmas altogether. So getting to the essence, then, of what Christmas is, is very complicated due to how intertwined it is with both ancient pagan festivals and this ever-evolving cultural and Christian expression of it that we practice today. Yet as Christians, we do have the ability to distill Christmas to a simple essence, which is really at the heart of Advent, from the Latin word for arrival. We celebrate, I've said this every single week as we've gathered over this month, we celebrate the first arrival of Jesus at his birth, but in Advent we also then anticipate the second arrival of Jesus at his return. And so our celebration is based on the premise that God gave the world the greatest gift imaginable, and the one that was most needed, the gift of himself in Jesus. But as we think about the essence of Christmas, I wonder, you don't have to actually yell this out, um, I just have to say that, because some of you are hecklers, so I just wanted to be, I feel like you need very clear instructions, so just think about this in your own silent mind, okay? As we think about the essence of Christmas, what would you say is actually at its core? Because I would argue that the answer is really one simple word. It is the word love. Arguably, 
the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, plainly states this. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So it was love that drove Jesus to leave the comfort of heaven. And it was love that drove Jesus to allow other people to betray him, to falsely accuse him, even abuse him. It's love that drove Jesus to allow himself to suffer and die. And it was love that lifted Jesus from the grave for the very people who had put him to death. It was all about love. Love is the essence of Christmas. Now, I don't know about you. We might disagree on this, and that's okay, but I've got the mic. So um, I have a general aversion to nativity scenes. You might be here. You might love them. I am not a fan. I might, you might think I'm a Scrooge, but what many people find sweet or comforting, I in general find creepy, and I want you to hear me out on this. On the one hand, just think about all of the different kinds that we have. On the one hand, we have the precious moments ones. You've probably seen these. I, I don't know what dark and soulless psycho thought this, these things up, but I do not in any way find these to be enduring or cute. They're just these porcelain collections of dead-eyed toddlers. That's what they are. So I do not like those. Then we have all of the European fine art. So just, just look at this one. For, for one thing, everyone's always white in these pictures. I don't know how well you know your history. No one at the original nativity would have been white. Uh, second problem is you've got, especially in this one, you've got this like creepy, witchy, dead-eyed looking Mary Poppins who for sure is just like, I'm going to steal this baby when these people look away. <laughs> I saw this this week. I was like, she's plotting a kidnapping at the nativity. And so just in general, though, the majority of the nativity imagery really does tend to lack any authenticity with the biblical story. For instance, we always see these nativities that have the shepherds and the wise men together. But I don't know if you know this, but that did not actually happen. So the, the, first of all, you know, we're never told that there was three wise men. People assume that, and they started to write that into songs and stories because three gifts are said to have been given to Jesus. But nowhere does the Bible record how many they were. Um, but what we do know is that the shepherds were certainly there that first night. But, you know, the wise men didn't come for somewhere between 40 days and two years later. So whatever we see on this screen is not reality. They were never there altogether. So my point in this is just to say I'm not a huge fan of nativities. But that being said, when we do contemplate the nativity scene, meaning when we imagine in our minds, and maybe you can even do this now, just don't use those images, when we contemplate the nativity scene, when we imagine Mary and Joseph huddled over the newborn Jesus wrapped in that manger, we should see God's loving embrace of this world. And he also, this leaves us to ask this question of what does this love actually mean for us? And I would argue it means at least three things. First, God's loving embrace means the restoring of our basest and most essential relationship. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says this, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So you and I were made by God, and you and I were made for God, and sin 
the Bible says, destroyed that intimacy, destroyed the safety and the comfort of that relationship, but God loves us so much, he made a way to restore that relationship for us. Secondly, it means the healing of our deepest and most painful wounds. My guess is very few of you remember this, but we actually started this year as a church family in Psalm 147, verse 3, and so I want us to end this year in Psalm 147, verse 3. The psalmist says this, God heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. Healing is the core to God's character. In all that he's doing, he is always healing. Because of his endless love for you and I, he carefully and patiently waits to heal our every wound. And then finally, God's loving embrace means the redeeming of our biggest and most damaging mistakes, which we have many of, all of us. Romans 8, 28, the Apostle Paul said, all things work together for the good of those who love God. Now, when Paul said all things, he actually meant all things, even our own sin, even our own mistakes. And one of the most mind-bending truths about God is that somehow he weaves the entirety of our story, the good, the bad, the ugly, into this picture of how good and how big and how loving he actually is. And I can attest to the fact that God has used some of my biggest mistakes in the profoundest of ways in my life and in the lives of other people as well. So as we think about the most important part of this love that lives on as the essence of Christmas, here's here's how I would put it in a sentence. God's endless love is a gift to to be embraced, not a wage to be earned. That sentence in so many ways, is at the heart of Christian faith and what makes Christian faith distinct from every other religion in the world. God's endless love for us is a gift that we embrace, not a wage that we earn. Remember, back to John 3.16, Jesus said, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So I want you to just compare that invitation to believe with the resounding message of religion. Religion says... Everyone who believes and jumps through the hoops that we determine will not perish. But Jesus never said that. And that's not to say that Jesus is indifferent to how we live. Throughout the entirety of the scriptures, Jesus commands a way of life that results in deeper relationship with him and results in our own flourishing. But all of that flows from the faith-filled decision to receive his love through belief. Religion subverts the free gift of God's love and makes it a wage that you have to earn. And this is why, to come back to this season, Jesus is so much better than Santa. And I'm not like one of those curmudgeons. I mean, I hate nativity scenes, but I don't have actually any problem with Santa, ironically. (laughs) I'm not anti-Santa. I think Santa's super fun. And uh, so I'm not anti-Santa, but his message kind of sucks, just to be real honest. Because what Santa says is, you get gifts if you are good enough. And Jesus says, I'm giving you this gift because you can never be good enough. And so the question that we are left with is, will we receive the gift of his love? And in my experience, as as sort of maybe basic and foundational as this all sounds, in my experience, 
this is one of the greatest challenges of faith. See, it is one thing to receive God's love in what we might call the saving sense. But, you know, Jesus offers so much more to us than just saving love. He also offers us an identity-forming, identity-shaping love. An endless love that you can't outsin, that you can't outrun, and that you will never outgrow. And because you don't earn it, you can never lose it. But this is, this is also why it's so important for us to continue to face the wounds and the pain of our past. Because some of us did not experience a love that we needed so deeply, it has deformed our ability or impeded our ability to even receive love in this life from people, but even more importantly, from God. And so one of the reasons it's important that we look back on what has happened to us in the past is that we work to a place of healing so that we can actually even receive and experience the love of Jesus in a transforming and healing way. This love is yours because Jesus Christ, the one true God, loved you so much that he was willing to be born on a dirt floor to a teenage mom, live a perfect life, die to pay the price for your sin, and rise to heal the divide between himself and humanity. That's love, and that is the essence of Christmas. God's endless love is a gift to be embraced, not a wage to be earned. So will you receive this love again today? That for you might mean receiving that love for the first time by turning from living your own way and trusting Jesus by faith to be your king, to be your Lord, and to be your savior. And for the rest of us, it just means continuing to learn how to actually embrace and experience his love in a real and formative way. And so as we head into Christmas tomorrow, and we have these images of a nativity in our minds, I want you to see those as God's embrace of this world, holding out to you an offering of saving, sustaining, and transforming love. And the question remains, will you receive that? Let me pray, and then we'll sing one last song together. God, we thank you so much. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. We thank you that you have not only professed that love, but that you have displayed it. We thank you, Jesus, that you were born, that you added full humanity to your divinity, that you spent 30-some-odd years just living a normal life behind the scenes that we know virtually nothing about, just being faithful day in and day out to be human, but that you did that perfectly. We thank you that you, because of love, allowed yourself to be crucified in our place. And we thank you that you rose again, offering not only salvation, but also an identity that transforms us and shapes us and makes us new, that heals our wounds, that restores our relationship with you, that has the ability to redeem the biggest mistakes that we ever make. And so, Lord, I just pray over each and every one of us 
that we would be able to, in a very real way this afternoon, be able to receive that love, to feel that in a way that shapes the way that we live and the way that we respond and live in the open with you and with one another. So Lord, we thank you for Christmas, even though it is a complicated and a difficult time for many of us. I pray especially for comfort for those that are celebrating this Christmas in the wake of losing someone that they have loved very dearly. We thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted, and so we ask that you would be, and we ask that in the, in the midst of grief and in the midst of stress, we would still be able to celebrate you because you are worthy of that. Thank you for your love. Help us to receive it now. In Jesus' name.